Thank you for joining us today. This is Clint Byers, lead pastor of Forward Church. I pray this message blesses and encourages you. I hope it inspires transformative grace in your heart and establishes you even deeper in your new covenant identity in Christ. Now take a deep breath, become aware of God's spirit within you, and enjoy the message. You know, so we are to um, experience transformation by the renewing of our minds. And as you, and so what is it that you are renewing your mind in? It's like what I'd said before the announcements. What you're renewing your mind in is who you are in Christ. And who you are in Christ is defined by what Jesus accomplished in his death, burial, and resurrection on your behalf. And so life you know, I, I'll use, I don't use the terms battle much because in kind of charismatic Christianity, Christian in circles where people still believe in the gifts and, you know, we are endeavoring to walk in the power that Jesus gave us to walk in and, and experience that aspect of being the church in the earth, which we should be. And, you know, we see miracles and should see more. We, you know, we should be better at miracles than we are because we have the power of God on the inside of us. But I'm not going to try to get into the why and why nots and dissect all that stuff out. I just want to have the full-on spiritual perspective of what's the potential here. I want to hold that as the possibility in my mind and not back my way, my thoughts, not back into the envelope of, Okay, well, here's the potential, and the further I get away from the potential, okay, well, there's this distraction. Here's this reason. Here's this reason. Here's this excuse. Here's it. Well, look at that, you know, and I, I just don't want to do that. And it, and it can be challenging to live that way, but if you know how to shift your inner life, your inner world, your thoughts, your feelings, to be consistent with how God sees you, with what Jesus accomplished, then you can hold the possibility of the potential in your heart and your mind and always expect it. And then if it doesn't come to pass, it doesn't shipwreck your faith because you're just confident in who God is. Like, it's not about growing your faith or trying to get stronger in your own abilities or capacities. You know, there, there, there was kind of a movement where it was all about uh, get, you know, stronger faith and faith from the perspective as if it's your ability to believe God. Faith is not your ability to believe God. Faith is your response to who God has revealed Himself to be. Faith is looking at God, God saying, I am your provider, and you say, yes, I believe that. I agree with that. Faith is trusting what He said. And so, when Jesus describes great faith and little faith, he's not talking about people that have more faith than other people. He's talking about people that are more persuaded of the character of God than other people who are less persuaded of the character of God, right? That, that, that's the difference between great and little faith. And there seems to be an interactive aspect of the degree of which you experience what Jesus paid for in great and little faith. So how do you get great faith versus little faith? You get to know God, you, specifically through Jesus. You just watch how He treated people. You understand and learn the things that He accomplished in His death, burial, and resurrection. You, you become a student 
of the power of the sanctifying aspect of His blood, which was once and permanent and continual. You know, like you, you get into the details of, man, on that cross, He literally bore my disease in some way. I don't understand all of those aspects, but I know this. On the cross, because He was punished for my sin, the effects of the sin, so He was punished for it, but also God put in Him sin. He who knew no sin became sin. And I've meditated on that for years, the idea of Jesus becoming sin on the cross. This is 2 Corinthians 5. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might be the righteousness of God in Him. He became sin. Okay, so on that cross, He wasn't just up there pretending. He wasn't just, you know, getting whipped and beat and then dying. No, there was an exchange into Him. The whole of the sin of the human nature was put into Him. That's not to say that God took all of the sin nature off of humanity. It was that the punishment that every human deserves, He put into Jesus. And some people will say, well, because He did that, then therefore then all of humanity is already clean, whether they believe or not. I'm not saying that. That's some weird form of universalism. It's called Christocentric universalism or inclusion. And I'm not advocating for that at all. Each individual person still has the responsibility to say yes to what Jesus did and be born again. But in terms of what Jesus experienced on that cross of becoming sin, think about this. If He became your sin nature in terms, then also the effects of that sin came to full fruition in His body. And the effects of that sin is what? Death, right? That, that's, that's one of the reasons. It wasn't that God necessarily killed him. It's that he made him to be sin, and sin ran its full course. And he also punished him as if he sinned on your behalf. And the full penalty of breaking the law on behalf of all mankind, God punished him for. And there are some people today that are trying to remove the punishment aspect side of it. No, he punished him because sin must be punished. So he was punished for it, and sin in him bore full fruit unto death so that you could have life, not just spiritually, not just mentally and in your soul, but even in your body. Jesus bore the effects of sin in his body to give you the effects of life that's in his. Now, you don't have to convince God to give you that healing because He already paid for it on the cross. He already put the work into exchange and provide it for you. So in Him, you have been given all things that pertain unto life and godliness because He's already done all the work. Spirit, soul, and body. And the effects of it have, are in Christ and Christ is in you Therefore, everything that God has to give you is in Christ already in you. You lack nothing other than the manifestation of you experiencing it in this life. 
And that, that, that's what we're trying to seek out. That's what we're trying to wrestle with our faith to contend, to experience life as God has provided for us. And, and, and that's, that's difficult and troubling for people. That creates all kinds of theological debate and structuring and division. And I get that. You know, I understand that. And, and it's challenging to think that Jesus actually meant his prayers. <laughs> Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Sorry, there's a little sarcastic jab, but I just kind of wanted to let it land for a minute. You know, He meant that. Why would he pray it if it weren't a potential? Um, I've, got a, I've got a message that I'm shaping up called Quantum Entanglement in Prayer. Maybe in the next week or two. I'm excited about that one. Um, but I, I, I've, been, I've been this topic of experiencing everything that Jesus died for us to have and, and how we go about trying to experience it, and then also how we minister toward other people. You know, we've been kind of hovering around this, and I've talked about these ideas of the, the kind of deliverance methods that it leads us into and the kind of inner healing methods that it leads us into, and, a, you know, continuing to just kind of sharpen and clarify and, and really get down to the point of, of just so that we can understand it so that we have a solid ground to stand on, and we're not trying to believe for something, but we're questioning do, can I really believe for this, and how do I believe for it, right? So when we're talking about just the model of, and I'm, I'm using this as an example, but, but, the, but, the, but the dynamic applies in a lot of different ways. The model, the example, is um, this idea of whether or not unforgiveness in your heart can keep you from experiencing let's say, healing or provision or whatever, something specifically that Jesus paid for. Are you with me? Right? So how many of you have ever heard, if you have unforgiveness in your heart towards someone, God won't forgive you? And that's kind of scriptural. I'm going to address that specifically here in a minute. Or you've heard or been taught or been ministered to in such a way where they prayed for you. It, maybe it didn't happen, and then they said, well, do you, do you have unforgiveness in your heart towards someone? You ever been in that kind of environment? Yeah. And to me, to ask, to pray for somebody, they don't get healed, to then ask them, do you have the sin of unforgiveness in your heart? Because probably legally that's what's keeping you from being healed. It's just as well you may have asked them, I'm praying for you, you didn't get healed, did you eat too many cupcakes this week? Did you drive too fast to work yesterday? Because forgiveness at that level is no other, is no, no greater sin than any other sin. What you're saying is you have sin in your heart, and because of that, God can't heal you or won't heal you, or He's withholding it from you. And so when you get down to the nuance of what's actually being said, if you really talk about the differences, the distinction between what's going on in your heart and what's going on in the spirit realm, you'll begin to see two very different uh, schools of thought. One school of thought looks, and I'm, I'm going to ask you to um, follow me when I get there, uh, Philip, but one school of thought sees 
experiencing the stuff that Jesus died for as a legal matter in terms of the spiritual dimension needs to be reordered as, as if there's like this spiritual judicial system that you have to engage. And it's like, okay, well, you didn't get this, so therefore we need to enact forgiveness. Okay, now that will then give the path and the right for you to be experienced. So now let me just, just, just for clarification, for unforgiveness in your heart might keep you from experiencing healing. But there's two, there's two ways to look at it as to why. One is that from the finished work perspective is that if you have unforgiveness or any other sin in your heart that might be keeping you from experiencing healing, it could be because the way that it's affecting your heart is hardening your heart and desensitizing you from being able to connect with that spiritual blessing that is already in you in Christ. Whether it be guilt or shame or just this anchor and carnality that's causing the spiritual thing, the blessing that is already in you, provided in the blood of Christ, that's already on the inside of you in seed form, trying to grow into your life, you could be stopping that from growing because of doubt, fear, the deceitfulness of riches, the lust of other things, unforgiveness, anger. You could be blocking that because of you have domain over the interaction of spirit on the inside of you, the beliefs of your heart, and how it affects the world around you. The other view is everything's out here, and so we need to order the spiritual realm so that that thing that God has for you can come and get to you. And then that's where you get into ideas of the courts of heaven, and we need to go up and plead these cases and win these victories and battles, and therefore we go to Jesus. And because and there's kind of this mixture of you kind of have it, but you still got to go do something out here and order the spiritual. You have to affect the spiritual realm in such a way so that that which God has can get to you. Am I, are you seeing the difference? And, and it's oftentimes it's muddied and it's a little bit of both in most people's thinking. But what I'm trying to do is help you be delivered from dead works. I'm trying to help you rest in what Jesus paid for. So in other words, what it looks like that we, where we really struggle is I'm praying, but I'm not experiencing the victory and the deliverance and the overcoming. I wonder why. I wonder, is there a curse in my life? Do I have sin in my heart? Is there, uh, you know, some kind of spirit in my life that is causing the block? You know, and so then you go, act, you go back into Old Testament stories of angels blocking the answers from heaven. And it's like you, you, you just you have to realize all, everything that you need, yes, is still in heaven, but heaven has been, I won't say relocated, but, but you've been connected to it inwardly. Like the supply from God, which you need, that affects your life, is now not out there. You are connected to it. So everything you need from God ever is in Christ and Christ is in you. And we need to live from the reality of Christ is in me. Christ, the hope of glory is in me. Everything that I ever need from God is already, He's not withholding from me. I don't have to go do some legal act to qualify or to get Him to release it 
or to wreck the enemy. In fact, last week, if you want to throw that, sort of that first passage, last week we ended on this idea that in the atonement on the cross, Jesus, this is Colossians 2.15, <clears throat> Jesus having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. And what, what does that mean? Jesus, in his resurrection, and you go back and read Psalm 18, which I think is a prophetic telling of the resurrection of Christ, because the precedent is set in Acts 2 that uh, King David is prophesying the words of the Messiah on the cross and in the grave. It's a fascinating study when you go look at the Psalms, many of the Psalms from that perspective. Psalm 18, is a, to me, is a beautiful poem and telling of the Messiah's experience of coming up out of that grave. And you, I think you see him do this. You see him go and strip the enemy. And so the image of what this is, is a conquering king having a victory over a warring tribal nation or another kingdom. The, the victorious king goes and captures that defeated king, cuts his, arm, cuts his thumbs and toes off so he can't swing a sword or run, and chains him up, drags him through the defeated camp and the victorious camp and says, here's the defeated king. He has no more authority over you. He's completely vanquished. In fact, his kingdom has no power. We, the victorious kingdom, rule and reign now over that kingdom, and their king is defeated. And Jesus did that to our spiritual enemy. I promise you, every devil, every principality, every power, every spiritual dark force watched Jesus drag the enemy through the streets of the spiritual dimension, and they know that he's defeated. So when you stand in your authority in Christ and proclaim the victory, they already know. They're like, oh, yeah, man, we saw our king get drugged through the streets. Man, they know that. They're hoping that you don't know that you're authority. And that's where all this nuttiness comes into play because devil's breaking in in areas where they have no authority and power because we are uneducated, we are unaware of our authority in Him, and we still play that game. But as soon as you stand in who you are in Christ, resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Amen? Amen. So, so this idea of what will happen in your life, or, and you may have done this as you're praying, something doesn't come to pass, maybe you don't connect with God in a way that you think that you should, or an answer doesn't get answered, or a prayer doesn't get, you know, if you want to say it that way. If you fall into the mindset of, what did I do wrong for God to allow this? Or, what have I not done in order for Him to give this to me? That, that's a legalistic mindset where you think that you have to manipulate things in the spiritual realm to get them set right in order for you to experience what God has for you spiritually, inwardly, that manifests into your life. Are you with me? And, and, and I don't think people realize that you can be spiritually legalistic. It's like quasi-spiritual. But there's a lot of mixture in uh, the, the explanation from people who are, paying, who are you know, open to the idea of interacting with spirit and praying in tongues and believing for miracles and all that kind of stuff. So I, I just want you to be free. I want you to be rock solid in your identity and rock solid in knowing 
What is yours as a child of God? Physically, spiritually, and soulishly, emotionally, all of that stuff. You know? Now, if you're saying, well, God, uh, I've been praying for the right spouse for 10 years. I'm not sure Jesus died for your spouse on the cross in terms of, like, he owes you that. Are you with me? I mean, because people will do that. Like, your house being sold. Well, Jesus, on the cross, you paid for my house to be sold. Uh, it, it's more to do with the things that happened in his body, the salvation that you experience. Are, are you with me? I'm telling you, because we do that, huh? Is that not your football team winning yeah, your football team winning. Go dogs. Now, 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 when you pray in tongues, can you affect the world around you to order the situation, you know, where your house does sell? Uh, certainly, you know. That, that, that's where the inner, huh? Yeah, your authority does come into play. But if it's something Jesus paid for, it's yours. You don't have to go into that spiritual dimension and order things to experience it. You just become convinced and experience it. And there's a lot of responsibility in that because it's up to you to be persuaded that that's who God is and that's what Jesus paid for. Amen? Amen. All right, so I just want to read this, and it kind of says it in the same way. But to understand spiritual matters... And how it affects this dimension, we have to understand the heart. So, so, so I think the church misunderstands a lot about the inner man, this thing that we call the heart, that, this, that, that, gets, that, that God gives us a new one. It's like, it's like the deeper, it's, you could almost think of it as like your spiritual subconscious, how that works, if you have any aware of that. The heart is where you believe. It's what the heart that man believes unto righteousness. Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart, for out of it flow the issues of life. It's the thing that God puts in you that's encoded with His law. You know, used to be laws were written externally in stone and you had to look to see what you had to do. Well, now inherently in your spiritual DNA, because you're joined to God, you have this heart that naturally knows how to obey Him. And when you learn how to live out of that place, you, you, you will naturally want to obey God. Obeying God is no longer contrary to your nature now that you're a born-again Christian. But your mind might still think like the old man, and so you're drawn into those behaviors and desires and lusts and become deceived and could even harden that heart and desensitize what God's trying to do through you, therefore contradict your nature. Um, but let me read this. So to understand spiritual matters and how it affects this dimension, we have to understand the heart. It's a legal matter versus a matter of the heart. So the legal matter meaning you don't have to order the spiritual dimension. Uh, God is sovereign there. God is in control in that place. This place he's given to us, so there's like a collaboration happening. But So if there's a block receiving something that's yours in Christ, the block is in your heart, not the spiritual dimension. And the block might be, yeah, there may be a lie that you believe. And yes, that lie, you may have entertained a lying spirit, but it's not that lying spirit that's keeping you from receiving it. It's the lie that the lying spirit is attracted to. So as soon as you quit believing that lie specifically about yourself, the lie is gone. That lying spirit has nothing to anchor itself to, and it just goes away. 
So you don't have to go into that spiritual dimension and make demons do things so that you can get healed. Let me keep reading this. Hang on. So if, so if there's a block, it's in your heart, not in the spiritual dimension. If we hold unforgiveness in our hearts or any other sin, it could possibly harden our heart, which can limit the manifestation of which we already have in Christ. And we see this in the children of Israel in the desert. So forgiving people is not a legal transaction in the spiritual dimension that makes you qualified to get something you don't have. Everything Jesus paid for is yours now in full. But yes, we should manage our hearts and our conscience and keep them clear so that we don't limit what God has put in us to grow. To receive things that are yours in Christ, you don't need to reorder the spiritual world. You don't need to go into the courts of heaven and plead the case and come out with victories. Jesus already has all the victory. What you need to do is renew your mind and become persuaded of what he's accomplished. I, and we're always going to talk about this. Just for the, the scriptural aspect, because I know people are saying, well, what about what Jesus said? So Matthew 6, 15, if you pull that up. Jesus said, but if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Okay, so Jesus said that. That's red letters. That's non-negotiable. Are we saying that Jesus was wrong? No, we're not saying that Jesus was wrong. But at the time, the new covenant was not enacted, and so therefore forgiveness was different. Forgiveness was absolutely connected to the things that you had to do in order to be forgiven by God. Now, in Christ, because the once and for all offering for sin is offered, you are forgiven as evidenced in these two passages. So Colossians 3.13, Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance among, against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. So you see there, the Lord forgave you, and that's the context from which you forgive. Are you with me? So you don't forgive to get forgiven. It's because you are forgiven, you forgive. Now, these, are, these things are important. I know that they're basic and maybe seem elemental, but you got to get these things right in how you believe who God is and how He's interacting with you to eliminate all of that goofy guesswork, like, the, like John said, the euphemism. So let me keep going. Ephesians 4, 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. So how do we understand Jesus saying one thing, and then after the new covenant is enacted through His resurrection, Scripture seeming to say another thing that seems contradictory? What's the difference here? I think the difference is found in areas like this in Romans 8.1. You know, Jesus was using the, stand, the impossible standard of the law justly and rightly to reveal to you, you can't keep it on your own. You're going to need me. So Romans 8, 1 through 4, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the standard. Even if you don't forgive somebody, there's no condemnation for you. Now, should you forgive people? Why? We just read it. Because God forgave us. That's right. That's right. That's exactly right. So, you're not condemned. Now, because you're free, live righteously, uprightly, and holy to honor what God has done in you through Christ. 
not to qualify, right? So verse 2, for in Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set you free from the law of sin and death. And I wish, you know, I'm going to probably do a, we need to go deeper into that. But verse 3, for the law was powerless to do it. And so what am I talking about the law? Forgive or else God, if you don't forgive, God won't forgive you. That, that's, that's a law. That is a, that is a standard that Jesus, the Son of God, put in place that was right and it was not wrong and that was the way you should have lived in order to experience from God. But that was the law that was against you showing you that you can't live well. And we see all through Colossians that that... So, so Jesus saying you must forgive to be forgiven... That standard was nailed to His cross. The standard against you that disqualified you from what God has for you was nailed to His cross. So for anybody to ever tell you that a sin inside of your heart is keeping, is, is causing God to withhold something from you, that is a, it's a lie. It's an absolute lie. But understanding the nuance that yes, that sin in your heart, you might be hardening your own heart toward God and not allowing that which is in you to grow. There is that nuance. And, and so it is important if you're praying for other people, if you run across the concept, let's say you get a word of knowledge that there is forgive, unforgiveness in someone's heart and they do have anger toward someone, if you minister into that area, make sure if that person is a believer, that they know who they are in Christ, make sure they know the legality of the situation. In other words, it's already yours. And then help them release that unforgiveness. Help them walk through it. It is certainly very appropriate to help people free their own hearts and their souls and their conscience and mind up from that stuff. But knowing because God's not holding it against you, so therefore you don't have to hold it against yourself either. You might minister from the perspective of that thing that you're holding against that person that maybe legitimately victimized you. I want you to look at them and realize Jesus paid for what they did for you. And, and you know, there's just, you walk people through from that finished work perspective. Um, but so this is what Jesus was doing. For what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man as an offering for sin. The fact that Jesus is a sin offering is monumental. I don't, unless we were like actually uh, old covenant law offering. And I would encourage you to do some study into that. Do some study into what it means for Jesus to be the once and for all sacrifice for sin. Not a sin offering that is offered temporarily and then has to be offered again once you make another mistake. We think that way. A lot of our denominations are structured that way, where you got to keep coming down and asking God repeatedly to be forgiven. Oh, well, I sinned. I'm not really sure. Somebody that's born again wouldn't live that way, so maybe I'm not even really saved. So maybe I should go back down there and get saved again, repent again. I need to convince God that I'm sorry. And it's like, oh, my goodness. That is a slap in the face to the suffering Messiah on that cross to say, I got to go back down and offer another sacrifice of repentance to get forgiven again. 
What? Now, it's absolutely appropriate to repent to when you become aware of the area where you're living against what God would expect, that you go to Him and, you know, from your part, you empty out. You Maybe even you confess your sin to Him. And there might be an, an apologetic aspect of, oh, man, I, oh, Lord, I'm sorry that, I, that I've dishonored the salvation that you've given me. I don't, I don't want to live, and you let it out. And you are remorseful, and maybe there is some sorrow there. But, it, but it's not from this groveling perspective. It's from this perspective of knowing that it's safe to go to Him in spite of that. And then clearing the air, being honest, owning your stuff, be a mature adult and admit to God because He's the only person that can help. So it's crazy what religion has done. It's made us, it's put a barrier where we don't go to Him. And, th and then it's like, well, maybe because you did that, He's doing this, this, and this, and this. Whew, man, we got, a lot of, we got a lot of work to do to represent who God actually is in light of Jesus. Amen. Um, verse 4, Romans 8, so that the righteous standard of the law might be fulfilled in us. That's amazing. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, he clarifies further down what does that mean? How do you know that you're in the Spirit or walking in the Spirit? He specifically says, how do you know that you're in the Spirit? If the Spirit's in you. So it's not a, a, it's not a, it's not a performance thing. It's a belief thing. It's a faith thing. Do you believe that Jesus is your sin offering? That's how you're walking in the Spirit. Are you with me? And then just the importance of the heart, you know, understanding the difference between what's going on in your heart and demystifying this, this spiritual judicial system. Uh, one of the greatest promises that I think is so amazing we see in Ezekiel 36, 26, um, the prophecy about this new covenant, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That's just talking about a heart that's soft toward God. And all of that he talks about again in Colossians 2.11. We talk about that a lot in here. I'm just telling you, you know, when you're sitting there in your front of your computer and you go blind, what are you going to do? If, if your trauma from your past rears its head and you start becoming tempted to display the same atrocious acts that were committed on you and, and it just seems to be part of you that you just are driving by this behavior and you're, you can't feel like I can't control this, you got this sin habit and you don't know where God is in the midst of it, what are you, you going to do? How are you going to stand against that temptation? How are you going to stand and be an example to your family and your friends and the world around us if we don't know how to deal with the stuff that's going on inside of our hearts and quit accusing God of doing that stuff to us? You know? Man, I just I think typical Christianity has done a disservice to the church by not couching everything in the tenets of this new covenant in our identity in Him and our authority in Him and our rights and our responsibility. 
So, so you know, I want, I'm, I wanted, I was actually going to go through Mark 4, but I don't want to really take the time because it, it just reaffirms the whole idea that Jesus talks about this idea of the way that you experience the kingdom is, is explained in the idea of the word being sown in your heart. And that word that's sown in your heart may be limited by your dependence on the external world. The word of God that is actually synonymous with the kingdom of God and your experience of it is in your heart. The word is in you. The word ultimately is Christ, but you want to make that spiritual aspect and the written word and the knowledge of God a reality in your mind, knowing the actual word of God, the wisdom and the logic of God in scripture, so that when you face something, you're not, oh, well, Maybe this is going to kill me. Maybe I should kill myself. I'm always going to deal with these financial issues. I'm always going to have this sin habit. Life is this. Life is that. This is who I am. And you're, and it's, you're bombarded by all the externals. What are you going to do? You're just going to accept that stuff and repeat those behaviors and stay stuck and depressed and, and alcoholic and worried and fearful and hard to be around and all of that stuff your whole life? Or are you going to change your inner world by putting on who you are in Christ because you are convinced of what Jesus has done on that death, burial, and resurrection? And you've taken time to persuade your heart of your place in that. And you actually live from the power of that so that you are unshakable. You're a rock that can't be touched by anything in this world. I mean, you feel, obviously, it doesn't make you a, a detached weirdo where you have no feelings or emotions. I'm not suggesting that. But it's just there's a peace about you inwardly because you're persuaded. That, that, that is our responsibility to God, to ourselves, and to the world around us. And it is the reason you're experiencing life in the way that you are. The challenges, the difficulties, the emotional issues, the, even, the, even the situations in life. It, it's what's going on on the inside of us, inside of our hearts. What is it that we allow into our lives and we don't allow? You know, I've got this thing. I've got this health issue. I've got this. And, and I get it. You know, I mean, I, I understand. Because when, when I'm preaching this and I'm preaching the ideal, I'm preaching the potential, I, I get it. I get that there are people that are in wheelchairs. I get that there are people that are in mental health institutions that have been victimized and are demonized and, and some people with genetic disorders and people that are, you know, just all kinds of actual legitimate horrific life debilitate. I understand that. So I'm not trying to stick my head in the sand and ignore that. But, but, but when, when I think about all that stuff, because I don't want to be, uh, you know, just, just kind of preaching all this stuff and it's not applicable to a lot of people's real-world lives. You know what I mean? I don't want to just preach this ideal and, and ignore people that are legitimately suffering. When, when that rises up in my heart and in my mind, because people are actually dealing with very difficult, heavy things that I don't know anything about and can't presume to even know what it's like to be in those situations, I think of one thing. I think of if Jesus were to step in front of that person, what would happen? Like if Jesus walked into this building 
and 10 of you have cancer and you're going to die next week, what would happen if He touched you? What would happen if Jesus stood in front of you and prayed for you? If Jesus manifested into this room physically in bodily form, walked in front of you and said, what is it that I can do for you? Because that's what He said. People would say, Jesus, I need help. He said, well, what, what, do you, what can I do for you? And they would say, this is my issue. And He would say, well, do you believe? Do you believe that I can do this? And they would say, yeah. And then what would happen? He would touch them and boom, completely changed. To me, that's what we're talking about. What do you think He's capable of? And what do you think He wants for you? And I don't, I don't, that's a real thing to me. Jesus being present and affecting your situation. That is a real thing. Because He's alive and active and present and interacting with us. Right now, in this moment, He is with you and will never leave you and will never forsake you. Is that a reality to you? And I don't mean you got to go have some weird, mystical, charismatic, woo-woo experience. He's there. The spiritual dimension is right there. One last illustration as far as just this dimension that we're in. You know, we, we, we live in a three-dimensional plane, and those dimensions are you can move forward and backward or, or anywhere on this plane, you can move side to side, and then you put those two dimensions together, and you can move around like a flat surface. This is one dimension. This is another. If I move around within those dimensions, units of spatial existence, you're moving. And then you put the up and down three dimensions that you move around within, right? Are you getting me? Three dimensions we live within. Now, physics is is having an identity crisis right now because of the whole quantum thing. They don't know what's what. They don't know what most of everything that exists is, and they're trying to figure it out. But for a certain point in time, it was said that gravity was a fourth dimension, that all of the three-dimensional existence was moving along, and you were experiencing life in that fourth dimension. So let's just call gravity a fourth dimension just for the sake of this example, right? So you're in this three-dimensional existence in this plane, and gravity is causing the mass that you are to have weight to it. And gravity is affecting you. It's aging you. It's touching you. Are you with me? Like, so if I move, I can move all around, but it's not independent from gravity keeping me anchored within this three-dimensional plane and perspective. Well, the kingdom of heaven is another dimension like gravity that is moving through this present. I'm moving around in it. I'm touched by it. I'm joined to it. It's where God rules and reigns in that place. The kingdom of heaven is not a distant place off somewhere else. It's a dimension that I am living within now. And it has an effect on me. But it seems, to, it seems to work like the whole quantum thing in that it doesn't take shape until there's human observation. It doesn't de, you know, go through this process of decoherence and become measurable and visible and, and observable until humans make an observation. 
And I know that that's like, if, you don't, if you're not into that kind of stuff, that might sound strange to you, but it's like what physicists are understanding about matter and the, the nature of the universe is that most of it's unseen and they don't even know what it is. And it, all, all matter seems to exist in a state of potential that is, they only know the possibility that it could, that matter can exist within. And it seems to only manifest into actual existence once humans make an observation. Does that make sense? Am I getting out there? You're like, it's late. Got a movie to go see. Getting a little hungry. But my point is this. We are in connection. We are in the midst of the kingdom of God. And it is interacting with us. It's moving through us. Just like radio signals are flying through this room right now. If you had the right receiver, you tune it to the right frequency, you'd pick up a radio station because that frequency, that receiver has the capacity to convert that signal into something that you, you can actually hear. Your heart is the receiver of the kingdom of God. And, and its persuasion or congruence with the laws of physics in that dimension determine of whether or not it's getting built into this dimension or not. And it's very easy. You just put on the new man in your mind, which aligns your heart with the intent of God's kingdom. And the this is why I wanted to go through Mark 4. The explanation of that whole process is it's a seed that is encoded already to grow into whatever that seed is. And for us, spiritually, it's, it's joy, it's healing, it's provision, it's wisdom, it's kindness, it's peace. All that stuff, all the fruits of the Spirit are already in there. And the power of the aspects of the Spirit that Jesus paid for you to experience are in there. And it's, we're moving within this dimension. We're not trying to figure out how to go out there and get stuff from God. We just need to align ourselves with His intent expressed in what Jesus accomplished. And then the seed will do what the seed does. You just trust and you don't doubt because doubt and worry and fear and trusting in out here, trusting in riches, trusting in this, you're not then built, you're not allowing that spirit to be built into this world. You're anchored in forming things out here. Like I, understand, I can see that, but it's hard to explain. I hope it makes sense. Don't, don't limit what God can do in your life. Don't, don't, don't allow people to disqualify you don't allow people to put yokes of bondage on you, and don't you dare do it to other people. And, and do whatever it takes to, like what Sarah was saying, to push out that which contradicts what Jesus paid for. And hold the truth in your mind and in your heart in spite of it all. Because it's growing and being built into your life so that the world can look at you and say, oh, wow, I don't understand that. You're lucky. No, it ain't luck. It's the fruit of God birthing into my life. I'm blessed because I'm in His kingdom, and I will be a blessing. Amen? Amen. Man, I hope you get something out of that.
I keep thinking every time I come in here, I'm going to preach half as long as I did, but I can't stop. So did you get something out of that? Stand up on your feet if you would. We got some men and women that will pray for you. You know, when you kind of think of things from this perspective, it changes how you pray, it changes how you believe, it changes what you think is possible. You know, and you kind of have to wrap your mind around, man, God is, God is present, and life can be different in a good way. Father, we thank you, we love you, we trust you. We submit ourselves to you. We want to be salt and light in this earth, and we don't want to limit you. We want to live lives that are honoring to what Jesus did. So we thank you that we're your children. Thank you for all those benefits, but also we're willing to take responsibility to order our inner worlds to, so that we are uh, in alignment spiritually with who you say that we are. Thank you for that. Amen, 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 amen.